of you are sitting here today, and here's what I firmly believe. The Spirit of God is going to come over you, and your next step of obedience is baptism. How in the world can we claim that Jesus is Lord if we are not willing to do the very first thing He asks us to do as followers? There is absolutely no such thing as private Christianity. As I hear the preacher say in the name of the Son and the Father, can I really leave it all in three feet of water? And on the count of three, I'm going to invite you to do something bold. I'm going to invite you to leave this worship center in that very moment. Just walk on out. All of our campuses, just go. Just go. What are you waiting for? Go. Go. There they go. There they go. Give it up, church. Just go. Just go. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Go. Go. There you go. It's a way to show, you know, I'm committed. I will follow up Jesus no matter what. I will follow him for the rest of my life. And God restored my home. God restored my family. And showing publicly that I won't be a quiet Christian anymore. I just wanted to profess my faith in Jesus Christ, that he is my savior and he's my everything. What I am today is to the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. I decided to get baptized today because I'm a believer and I want everyone to know that. I would just echo what Pastor Benji uh, was saying that uh, what happens here just isn't normal. You don't see it at every church across the country right now. And I just wanna take a minute and thank Pastor Benji for um, bringing me to be part of the New Hope family. It really is an amazing family. And we have an incredible leader and incredible pastor. Can we just celebrate him, Pastor Benji? We've been in this message series titled Dangerous Church, and uh, today we wanna continue that. And I wanna ask you this question, who's the most powerful person you've been in a room with and what did they use their power to do? Who's the most powerful person you've been in a room with and what did they use their power to do? So several years ago, I was traveling with a good friend of mine. His name is Manny Ahome. He runs a ministry called Samaritan's Feet. And he feels like God's given him a vision to put 10 million pairs of shoes on 10 million kids in 10 years. 10, 10, 10, right? Pretty easy to remember. It's a pretty amazing ministry. There's kids all over the world that don't have shoes on their feet. They're getting diseases from that and having really poor health conditions, a poor life because of it. And so uh, he got invited um, by uh, some diplomats in the country of Burundi to come and be part of a shoe distribution there. And he invited me to go with him. So we're on a plane, we're flying to Burundi. We land in this little country that's just south of the equator in Central Africa. It's right below the country, Rwanda, if you're looking for it. And we land on this runway and I'm watching it and we're running out of runway really quick, but the plane finally comes to a stop at the end of the runway. There's only one runway, by the way. We get to the end and there's nowhere for 
the plane to taxi. So he has to turn around and we actually go through the yard of the airport to turn back around taxi up to the terminal. The terminal is really a one gate terminal. I don't know if you've flown into airports like that in the past, but I did this time. And there's two parts that you go into. There's the regular section and then there's the VIP section that you go into. And so as we're coming off the plane, there were some folks, official folks from the country that greeted us. And sure enough, they escorted us to the VIP side. And I'm like, yes, finally, after all these years, I'm a very important person. I get the treatment. And I was expecting something really fancy, but again, we're in Burundi. We're just south of the equator in Central Africa. And what we got was the fast pass. For those of you who go to Disney all the time, we got the real fast pass. We got through customs really quick. They basically just stamp, stamp, go, stamp, stamp, go. And uh, as we come out of the terminal, there's a motorcade. Now I've never been in a motorcade in my entire life. And I don't know if you guys have or not, but what this motorcade looked like was military truck, military truck, car, van, military truck, military truck. All the military trucks had lots of military people on them and they had lots of guns. Now, I don't know a lot about guns and you guys probably know more than I do, but I just called them machine guns. They were big guns. They're all types of guns. And I started to wonder like, what in the world did I get myself into that we need so many guns? And uh, so we load up in our van and the motorcade pulls off and it was amazing. All these military guys hanging off the trucks with their machine guns. We're in the middle of the motorcade and as we're going through the town of Bujumbura, which is the capital of Burundi, um, all the cars pulled over, came to a stop. Everybody stopped walking on the sidewalks to see what was happening. It was a big ordeal. We blew through stoplights, went through intersections. We moved into a small part of the town that um, eventually the streets got narrower and narrower. And as we got into this part of town, I looked ahead and there were tanks parked across the road. As our motorcade approached, the tanks pulled back. There were military guys there. They're all saluting. Our motorcade goes through and the tanks pull back. We go down to the end of the street and uh, the motorcade comes to a stop. And before it could even stop, the guys were jumping off the trucks with their machine guns, laying down a perimeter all around us. And I was like, I don't, I thought we we're here to give shoes out to kids. Like what is getting ready to happen here? And they escort us around the corner of this building. And before I know it, in a few short minutes, we were at the presidential palace and I was standing in the backyard of the most powerful man in the country. And his name is Pierre Nkurunziza. And he was president of the country for several years now at that point, but he invited us to his house for something that you're gonna be amazed at. He asked us to come for a church service. And he invited his pastor and his secret servicemen were all at the palace. They all worshiped together with us. We heard a message from the pastor. We broke bread, we ate together. And then the president asked us if we would do something. He said, would you come and help my country? You see, in Burundi, they had been in this tribal war for years and years and years. You may have heard of it. It's the war between the Hutus and the Tutsis. There'd been a civil war. There'd been genocide. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people have been murdered and killed in the country of Burundi. Hundreds of thousands. They estimate a half a million people have fled the country as refugees to other countries trying to find safety. President Pierre came into power three of the first, three of the last seven presidents in his country were either murdered or run off the, out of the country. And so as he comes into his presidency, he prays to God and he says, God, listen, everybody else is dying. Like they come and get to be president. They get all this power and influence in the country and they're murdered within months. I'm asking you, God, if you would spare my life for one year 
and allow me to use power and influence to serve my country, I will shut down the country and we will worship you as the one true God. And God honored that. And over the next week, as I traveled with the president of the country, we saw him go to crusades where they shut down town squares and they, they talked about who God is and that he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross and, and defeat death so that people could have life, that accepting Jesus would bring life to each individual and to the country around it. I saw a president who got down and dug ditches with the people. He helped pave roads, he spread gravel, he painted things. He used his power and influence for the people of Burundi. Pierre Nkurunziza was a very powerful person and still is today because he used his gift of power and influence that had been given from his maker to honor his maker's wishes and desires. And so as we come together and we continue in this series, Dangerous Church, um, I want us to think about this idea of power because isn't it true that we all have some amount of power and influence in our life? Think about this for just a second. You might not think yourself a very powerful person, but think about it. If you're a parent, you have power over those kids. If you're a teacher, you have power over your students. If you're a business owner, you have, or a, a business leader, you have power over your employees. Um, think about it. if you coach, you have power. If you vote, you have power of choice, right? And if you have money, you have a thing called purchasing power. You've been given some type of power. And power is one of those things that gets handed down to us from someone who has the power to give. And if they hand down that power to us, that means that there had to be a purpose for the power. There's a reason that they gave you the power. If you're in the marketplace, for example, they may want you to help them sell more products. They may want you to deliver a better service or sometimes in organizations, they bring a person into an organization and they give them power and influence to make a change, to make a difference, follow this agenda. And then oftentimes, if we don't follow that agenda, if we don't accomplish the things that, uh, that wanted to be done from the person that gave us the power, the power can be taken away from us. Let me give you an example of that. Um, some of us have a person in our life called a financial planner. And when we show up to our financial planner, the financial planner sits down with you and he asks some simple questions. He'll say, hey, what do you want to accomplish with your money? What's your goals? What's your plan for life? And so if you have a financial planner, you sit down and you begin to share those things, your dreams, the things that you want accomplished and done with your money. And if the financial planner decides to do something different with your money than those things, very shortly, that financial planner may be without a job, right? You would fire them. You would take back the power and influence you gave them to manage your resources or your funds. Power and influence is always given with a purpose in mind. Power and influence is always given with a purpose in mind. So if power is a gift and it comes from somebody that's more powerful than us, have you ever considered that maybe the power and influence that you've been given in life, the power and influence that you wield right now as an individual could have come from God? And if so, if that power came from God, would you ask the simple question today, what does God want me to do with what he has given me? What does God want me to do with what he has given me? So 
We're gonna go to two stories in the Old Testament about two men who are very powerful and influential men. We're gonna turn to the book of Proverbs. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to Proverbs 31. If you don't have your Bibles, you can follow along with the notes on the screen. But what I wanna do is just set up for you really quickly what's happening in Proverbs 31. There's this King Lemuel. And um, he's starting off and talking to us and he starts telling us things that his mama has shared with him. Now, all of you guys can probably relate with all those wise sayings that your mama said to you. And as I started to read this passage, I started thinking about the things that my mom said to me. Like when we were out playing in the backyard and we come bursting in the doors and scream, mom, mom. And she'd say, if it's not broken or if it's not bleeding, it's fine, right? Did your mom ever say that to you? Or did your mom ever say this? This is probably for the guys in the room or watching online is, um, hey, whatever that thing is, do not bring it in this house. (laughs) I don't want it in here. My mom would always say this when I was younger. She was like, yes, you do have to take a shower. It doesn't matter if you weren't sweaty or dirty today, you always have to take a shower each and every day. Or those clothes aren't gonna walk themselves to the washing machine. They need somebody's help to get it done. Moms say all kinds of great things like that. But what we find in Proverbs 31 are those wisdom moments that moms impart on us. The ones that say, hey, don't take shortcuts in life. Shortcuts make your road longer and harder. Or the ones that say, not everyone's always gonna like you in life. There are gonna be people that just don't like you for whatever reason. Or that hard work pays off. Laziness gets you nowhere. Or when your mom said, hey, stand for something, be a principled person, have values, know who you are. And that's exactly what King Lemuel's mother is urging him here. She's going to the king and she's saying to him, she goes, listen, I don't want you to lose sight of the position in life that you've been giving. She's reminding her son that he did not create his own position in life. He was actually born into royalty. He was placed into a different spot in the journey of life than many, many other people. And this king's mom, she didn't want her her son to forget this idea that he didn't get to choose where he was born, what family he was born into, what he looks like, or what physical gifts that he would have in life. And at the very beginning of Proverbs 31, we see a mom who's trying to get her son to say, hey, you're the person with the most power in this country. When you look around your kingdom, don't look at other people who are poor, impoverished or impressed and think of them differently. They got a different starting point. They got placed into a different journey in life. And I don't want you to ever personally take credit for where you've been put in life, that your position in life actually comes at the mercy of God. He placed you into the position that you are. He's given you a certain amount of power and influence. And in the first seven verses, we see the king's mom begin to say these things to her son. She says, hey, don't chase women. That's pretty good advice for a mom given to her son. She'd seen it before. She'd seen it happen to kings, where a king, because he had access and opportunity 
and he had a little notoriety and people wanted to be around him and feel his power and his influence, she saw that where kings got caught up in chasing women that it actually diminished or diluted their power as a king. Mama told the king, don't get caught up in partying. Don't get caught up in drinking. She said, because when you do those things as a king, it can cause your judgment to stumble. And the power of a king comes in his ability to judge and rule his kingdom and do it well. And then his mom told him, just because you have affluence, just because you have access and you have the rights to do whatever you want, doesn't mean that it's actually right to do. She told her son that he had to put off his own indulgences in life, that there were some things that he had access to that he should put away because he had a bigger and greater responsibility to the people of his kingdom. That's a good mom. She's setting her son up well for life. She's grounding him in what his position means. She's telling him that you are a man of power and influence and it's been given to you for a purpose. And this is what she says in verses eight and nine. That's where we'll pick up. It says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. And his mom says to him, she's telling him that you're a person of great power and influence and you have a responsibility to speak for people who can't speak for themselves. There are people that don't understand how the laws even work. You need to speak for those people. There are people who are afraid to speak out right now. If they say something, they're afraid of what might happen to them. Stand up for the fearful. She's saying that there are people who are being oppressed by people of other positions, people who are rich, people who are powerful or holding other people down intentionally. You need to stand up and speak for them. She's saying to her son, son, there are people who are in imminent danger. They could die if someone else doesn't stand up and speak for their rights and help them right now. And she's asking her son to use his position, his power and his influence, no matter what other people think. Cause she says to him, the unjust and the unrighteous people, they're gonna think something else. There's gonna be people in life that every time you stand up for the oppressed, every time you stand up for the needy, they're gonna be like, why are you doing that? Why are you standing up for them? Why did you give them money? They're just taking advantage of it. They made their own decisions. They put themselves in this spot. And she's telling her son, use your position of power and influence to stand up for those people, to care for them, to speak for them where no one else will speak for them because they can't, they don't have the power. They don't have the influence to change their current situation on their own. So hold that picture of a mama's influence on her son on what the king's role and opportunity with power and influence is. And we're gonna jump to Isaiah 58 really quick. And we're gonna talk about Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophet. And if you don't know what a prophet is, um, a prophet is a person that's been given power and influence by God to speak his will to the people. Isaiah was born into an affluent family. He had lots of power and influence. Isaiah rubbed shoulders with world leaders. He would have been considered an advisor to many of those people in life. But Isaiah was also a prophet. His power, he knew, was handed down by God 
to speak on behalf of God to people about what God's will is. And he was in a country in the eighth century timeframe where they were on the verge of giving up many of their beliefs and following God. Judah had been a country that had really drawn close to God over time, but now they were in a season where they looked around and the countries that were next to them were being taken over by other countries. And while Judah had power and influence in the area that God had given them, they were fearful that somebody was gonna come take it away. That happens to us, right? Sometimes when we've been given power and influence, we worry about it being stripped away from us. Maybe it's at work and it's that new young guy that got hired in, he's doing really good, he's hitting home runs every single day. And you're starting to look over your shoulder saying, "Uh uh-oh, I bet he's coming for my job. Ask college quarterbacks or NFL quarterbacks about protecting their power and influence. There's always a backup. He's always working hard to get their job. And oftentimes we find ourselves, it's a natural position in life to protect our power and influence, our base that we have. And the people of Judah find themselves in the spot where they're trying to protect their own power. And they're not so sure that the God who got them there is gonna be the God that takes them forward. And they begin to look around at other countries, other kings, And they also begin to look around at other gods and say, huh, I wonder if somebody else might take care. What if God doesn't do it again? Maybe somebody else could take care of us. And Isaiah can see what's happening in the country. And he can see it through a simple thing. He can see that they're beginning to wane. Their trust in God is beginning to wane because they're becoming more selfish. They're becoming more self-centered, self-focused. They're worried about me and mine and not about others. And when Isaiah sees that beginning to happen, it's a dashboard like on a car with a gauge that's going to empty. And Isaiah says, "Uh uh-oh, their spiritual decline. Like they're not pursuing God's desires anymore. They're trying to protect themselves. They're becoming selfish. They don't care about other people. And I can tell that there's a spiritual decline in play. So Isaiah, through Isaiah 58, he speaks out about the neglect of other people because he could see that the people were beginning to distance themselves from God's heart. In the early parts of Isaiah 58, if you read the front part of that passage this week, Isaiah is actually talking to the people and he's saying, hey, you say that you're fasting. You say that you're worshiping God. A fast was a self-denial period that kept you from doing things like you would, you would give up something that you really valued, maybe food for the week or maybe something that you wanted to do or participate in. You would give up those things in self-denial so that your body and your spirit could focus on the things that God wanted for you. It was a form of worship. And Isaiah kept saying to the people, he said, hey, look, you are not worshiping God correctly. You're doing it all wrong. You're saying all the right things, but you're not actually doing the right things. It would have been the equivalent of Isaiah coming to today's church service, sitting in it, listening to a message, hearing exactly what God wanted him to do and saying, yeah, I got it, I got it, I got it. And walking out the front doors and forgetting everything he heard and not putting into practice anything that was said anything that God led them to do. Isaiah's warning them. He's saying, hey, you're hearing it. You're going through the motions, but you're not actually honoring and worshiping God. And this is where we pick up in Isaiah 58, six. It says this, 
is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? Isaiah's given them the comparison. He's saying, this is what fasting is supposed to look like, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide, with, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not turn away from your own flesh and blood. Isaiah reminds them to worship God in the right way isn't just going through the motions, it's actually putting these things into action. It's actually putting God's plan, God's agenda, God's desire into action. He's saying, Judah, if you want power and influence, if you want to protect that, all you have to do is follow what God's saying. And when you realize that you, or when you share your things with other people, you actually realize that everything you've been given comes from God, that he's the provider of all things, all of your possessions and your power and influence, they ultimately belong to God. And Isaiah tells the people of Judah, he gives them very specifics here. He says, hey, God's heart, his desire for you is to set the oppressed free, to stand up for those who can't stand for themselves, to feed people, to clothe people, to provide shelter, for people. And this is what Isaiah says next in the passage. You can find it in verse eight. It says this, then, it says, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then, Last week, Pastor Benji gave us this phrase. He said, obedience leads to opportunities. Obedience leads to opportunities. What Isaiah is saying to the people, you're worried about protecting your power and your influence, but you're not honoring the heart of the person who gave it to you. And what Isaiah says, if you'll just take the step of obedience and honor God, then the next opportunity will come. Then you will find out who the protector is of your power and influence. Then you will, he'll bring healing. Then he will bring strength. So many times, whether it was in Isaiah or even in our world today, we get worried about steps two and three and we forget just to take step one and trust that God will protect. God will be our strength along the way. And so church, if we're going to be a dangerous church, and if we're gonna really change the world around us, we have to recognize that the power and the influence that God has handed down, that our maker has handed down for us is a gift. And that God cares about all people, regardless of their position in life. Here's a powerful thing. It's a crazy statistic. American Christians, we make $5.2 trillion dollars. American Christians make $5.2 trillion. Talk about the most powerful people on the planet. Most of them sit in this room, a good chunk of them sit at our campus locations, watching online, they're new hopers. We carry a tremendous amount of power and influence. And get this, if we gave up 1%, just a little bit over 1% of that income, it would take the lowest people in poverty, a billion of those people and raise them above the poverty line. We're powerful. 
Our maker has given us power and influence. He's put us in a position in life where we have the opportunity to stand up for other people. In the Bible, there's over 2000 verses that talk about poverty and justice. It talks about the poor, the needy, sheltering people, clothing people, feeding people. It talks about those who can't stand up for themselves, those who are oppressed, those who are fearful to speak out. If they do, they're afraid of what might happen to them. In Proverbs 14, it says, the one who oppresses the poor insults their maker, but one who is kind to the needy honors him. Isaiah said earlier in Isaiah, learn to do right, to seek justice, to defend the oppressed, to take up the cause of the fatherless and plead the case of the widow. When historians look back in the next 100 years, what will they say about the church? What will they say about us and our time in the church? Will they say that this was a period where the church responded to the greatest challenges of our time, to poverty, to hunger, to racism, terrorism, and to slavery? Will they say that authentic Christians stood up courageously and responded to human suffering around the world? Will they say that we rushed in to comfort the afflicted? Will they say that we extinguished the flames of hatred in our communities and in the world? Will they write of an unprecedented outpouring of generosity where we gave our power and influence to other people for their own freedom? And will they say that this has been the church's finest hour? Yeah. I wanna share with you a story. In late 2015, God brought an opportunity to New Hope Church and um, it, to really stand up for the people in Kenya that had been oppressed. And we had been in Kenya in the town of Fika where a New Hope campus is located. And there was a group of people that came and said that there are some people that are being oppressed and they're being enslaved in what we call modern day slavery. And people were doing what is called survival prostitution. It means there was no other way for them to meet their daily physical needs than to prostitute their bodies. And a group came together and began to pray and through the power and influence of New Hope Church, through each of you, watching this service, we were able to launch a new ministry called Street Hope in early February, 2016. The ministry has stood up for the oppressed. And look, in just a short year, a little over a year, this ministry has been able to help 30 women and one man get off the streets and have real hope in life. And it's mind blowing what the ministry is beginning to do. do. Every person that comes off the streets gets discipleship. They have the opportunity to know who Jesus is and how much he loves them and that the people who are ministering to them are sent by Jesus to stand up and care for them. They have an opportunity to call a place home. This church that they walk into, this building that they walk into is a place that they can call home. They're connected to a church family that says, we love you. And guess what? They've been living in a community that neglects them and doesn't care for them. They could care less if they make it because they're all trying to fight for their own survival. That's a big thing. It provides jobs. Street Hope provides training and jobs that people can perform in their communities with the opportunity at the end of the program to receive a small business grant that empowers them to provide for their own families and to leave the bondage of the streets. 
through time and resources, they're being empowered with the opportunity to change their situation for themselves and potentially for generations to come. There's an artisan group and Street Hope has developed an artisan group that trains uh, people and equips them to use sewing machines and to do uh, jewelry work. And it allows them to earn a fair and consistent wage. And I'm happy to say that at all of our New Hope campus and lo- campuses and locations that you can buy these items in our resource center. And each time you buy an item, you use your power that's been handed down to you to provide freedom for someone halfway around the globe. There's this incredible story I heard this past week about a lady named Sarah who came to Street Hope. She is phenomenal. She has an amazing story. She was married, she had a child, she was pregnant with another child, and during that, her husband abandoned her. Now, abandonment is different than divorce in America. Abandonment means that that her husband just took off, he's gone. There's no child support, there's no alimony, there's no nothing. He left her, he's gone, she's out of his life. And all of a sudden, Sarah found herself in life with no money, no resources, no family, no education. She had nothing to take care of herself and her children, one soon to be born. So Sarah tried to start a business and that was unsuccessful. She didn't have the skills. She didn't have the training to make a successful business happen. And she found herself wondering how she was gonna provide for her children. And I want you to hear in Sarah's own words what she turned to next. Nawaambia niliamua uh, kutoa kwa rafiki yangu kuniambia badala usafe hivi kuna vile unaweza pata pesa kwa urahisi. And uh, I met a friend who told me there is an easy way to get money. So alinintroduce huko kwa barabara and uh, my friend introduced me to the streets. Siku ya kwanza nilienda nikarara usiku mzima sikupata mteja. The first night when I went to the streets, I didn't get any client that night. So I went back home without anything. I didn't get discouraged, so next following day, I went again back to the streets. So as I continued in the streets, I realized that it is working. So I was able to feed my child as I expect to deliver the, the one that I was expecting. Uh, after delivery, I faced a lot of challenges because I didn't have uh, a babysitter, a nanny, so the problems increased. So it forced me to again go back to the streets when this, the child I've just delivered is only two months old. Mm-hmm. So that I can continue working to be able to feed them and educate the one that was in school. Okay. So on the streets, there are a lot of challenges, a lot of diseases, but we keep on because we don't have any other way. Many times, 
we are always stigmatized and those who are around us really do not want to associate with us. If you want to move into a new estate, they they suspect that you have gone there to actually steal their husbands. So we do not have peace. Sarah turned to a life of survival prostitution. She went out the first night. It was her only option left that she could think of, and it didn't work. So she went out a second night until it did, did it over and over again while she was pregnant with her second child. Sarah is one of the 30 women that Street Hope that New Hope has been able to help bring off of the streets. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> Sarah now has a successful business and I want you to see this picture of Sarah. Her whole demeanor has changed. Look at the smile on her face. Through our power and influence, halfway around the world, we've been able to stand up for the oppressed for the people who are fearful to speak for themselves, for the people who are marginalized and bring freedom and hope to her life. Church, if we're going to change the world, if we're gonna be a dangerous church, if we're gonna be talked about as the best season of the church yet, we have to do something. We can't be like the people of Judah and just say we're doing something and, and go through the motions and look like we're doing the right things. We actually have to do it. We actually have to give up a little bit of our power and influence so that other people in the world will have the power and influence that they need to be free. So we're gonna ask you to do two things today. The first one is really simple. Look, if everybody watching the service today would give $19.99 at all of our campus locations, watching online, Facebook Live, sitting at the Durham campus, if all of us would give $19.99, we could fund Street Hope for an entire year. That means we could take 15 women from the ages of 18 to 25 out of survival prostitution and give them real hope. $19.99, if each one of us would give $19.99 today, hey, that's four Starbucks coffees. It's three Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich combos. Here's a little harder one. It's two months of your Hulu subscription, <laughs> right? Could we give up TV for two months to bring hope for someone who's prostituting their body because there's no other way for them to provide for their family. So here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. I'm gonna ask you if you have a smartphone to pull it out. It's the simplest and easiest way to give at New Hope. And all you have to do is open up your texting application, type in these numbers, 77977. Look, there's nothing more important than doing this right now as a church. We're gonna take the time to do it. I'm gonna show you. It's the simplest and easiest way to give here. 77977 is the number to put in. And then if you type in your campus um, identifier code, which is up on the screen, if it goes off of the screen, you have that on the text to give card that's in your seat back pocket in front of you. You can put in your campus code and then you hit send. I'm doing it with you guys. It's gonna send you back. Mine already came back. I got a link. You click on that link and it's gonna push you into our digital giving application. It's secure, it's safe. We've tested it over and over again. There's hundreds of churches all over the country using the same one. And uh, when the app comes up, you're gonna put in $19.99. You can put in $29.99. You can put in $199. 
whatever you feel like God's leading you to give. But if we all give $19.99 today, we can bring hope to 15 women in the streets of Kenya. When it comes up, put in your dollar amount. And then there's a fund category there in the middle of the screen. If you just click on that it, and you scroll to the bottom, it'll give you street hope. There's only like four categories in there. And then you hit next. It'll take you to a screen to confirm that that's how you wanna give. And then you hit give and your giving's done. If you already have an account set up, it'll take you less than 10 seconds to complete that transaction. In 10 seconds and for $19.99, $19.99 of your power and influence, it'll change someone's life forever. Now, if you don't like giving in an app, app like that, you can go to our New Hope app and you can click on the second icon on the homepage. It says, give to Street Hope. It'll open you up in the application, click on your campus location and follow all those next steps. If you don't like cell phones at least, and you're on your cell phone right now, at least click on Facebook and like us right now, okay? <laughs> but maybe you wanna do it at home on your laptop or computer and you can go simply to iGive. Go to newhopechurch.org and uh, click at the top of the screen on iGive, select the Street Hope Fund and you can give $19.99 there. And then if you just don't like technology at all, you can break out old school checks and you can write a check for $19.99 and put Street Hope in the memo field. It's gonna take us doing something. It's gonna take us giving up a little bit of our power and our influence to help people who can't stand up and help themselves. And then the last thing that I wanna ask our church to do, and we've been talking about this for a couple of weeks, we've been telling you that this Sunday is gonna be the Red Sand Project, and it's really important for all of us to be here and join together as a movement to do something. What the Red Sand Project is, is a partnership with an organization called Freedom United. It's the largest anti-slavery or abolitionist movement in the world today. They have something like over seven or 8 million followers and they're trying to end modern day slavery. Do you know that there's 45 million people in the category of modern slavery today? And they're trying to bring an end to it. But the problem is not very many people know what modern day slavery looks like. They don't know the story of Sarah. On top of Sarah, there's tons of stories. There's domestic slavery that's happening all over the world where people are forced to become slaves inside somebody's home and do household chores. There's intergenerational labor slavery where people, generations of people are made and forced to work in rock quarries or in fields. There's sex slavery where people are being sex trafficked. Just a few months ago, there was a story on the news about a model. This was a person of influence and power already. She showed up to a photo shoot. The two guys drugged her, shoved her into a suitcase, drove her to the border of Italy and France and held her ransom for $300,000 or they were gonna sell her into the sex slavery business. It happens every single day. We don't pay attention to it and we miss it. And what happens is it's like the cracks in the road or in the driveway, we step over those things. They're marginalized people. We don't see it every single day. And what we wanna do is leverage our influence today to stand up for those people who've been marginalized every single day. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna take these little bags of red sand and we're gonna go and we're gonna meet at locations all over the Carolinas. And we're gonna take this red sand and we're gonna pour it into the cracks and raise awareness to something that people step over every single day and say, hey, there's a problem in our world. We need your power and influence. And guess what? The church is gonna lead the way. 
We're not gonna stand by and let other people talk about who else saved the day. The church, through the power of Jesus Christ and the power and influence that he's afforded to us, we wanna move together and raise awareness to the marginalized people in the world today. So all of our campuses, you'll notice that there's a card inside the bag. That card tells you where we're meeting. There's all kinds of projects in Durham. It's at one o'clock today at CCB Plaza and at Herndon Park. They're also doing a red sand project at, um, at UNC, at the campus of UNC. And so we want our church to stand up and join together, have a voice for over 45 million people. We want other people to gather with us and use their power and influence to make a difference. And that church is how we can change the world. Let's not be like the people of Judah. Let's not just say things. Let's not just go through the motions. Let's actually do something. And I want you to listen to the words of the prophet Isaiah as he speaks to the people of Judah and see, think about how that resonates with us and what opportunity we have to give our power and influence to change someone else's life. Cry aloud, shout, lift up your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their rebellion. Tell my people what's wrong with their lives. They seek me daily and delight to know my ways. They ask me, what's the right thing to do? They act like righteous people that would never abandon the word of God. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Why aren't you impressed? Here's why. It's because you are fasting to please yourselves. You fast, but you argue and fight over small things. You fast, but you attack those who don't think and act like you. This kind of fasting will never get you anywhere. You go through the motions, bowing your heads like plants, bending in the wind, dressed in clothes for mourning. Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to God? This is the kind of fast I'm after. To break the chains of injustice, to lighten the burdens, to free the oppressed, to cancel the debts, to share your food with the hungry, give shelter to the homeless, to clothe those who need it. Don't turn away from your own flesh and blood. They are your family. Then your light will break forth like the dawn. Your healing will quickly appear. Your righteousness will go before you and the glory of God will go behind you. You will call and God will answer. You will cry for help and God will say, here I am. Remove the heavy burden of oppression. Do away with the gossip and finger pointing. Feed the hungry, help those in trouble. Then your light will shine out from the darkness. Your shadowed lives will be bathed in the sun and God will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in the emptiest of places, restoring your strength. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Restore, renovate, rebuild the broken in your community. Raise up the old foundations. You will be called repairer of the broken systems, restorer of home and community. Obedience leads to opportunities. You can hear that in the last verses of Isaiah. Honor the heart of the maker, of God, who gave you the power and the influence. 
Be a good steward of it. Stand up for the needy. Speak out for the oppressed. We can be a difference maker. Just a few minutes, our ushers are gonna come and we're gonna collect our tithes and offerings. And I'll tell you what, as I prepared for this message, here's the thing I got excited about here at New Hope every single week through our tithes and offerings, we stand up for the oppressed and the needy all the time. You guys have been giving to that in such a great way already. Today, we have an opportunity to amp that up just a little bit more. And so when those baskets come by, continue to worship God with your tithes and offerings. And if you didn't do the digital giving today, you can drop a check or cash into the offering basket. 1999, $19.99. I like to say four Starbucks coffees, three Chick-fil-A meals. That's all I'd have to give up in the next couple weeks to be able to change someone's life for all of eternity and maybe their children's lives for generations to come. Church, let's go be a difference maker.